Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for April 23rd, 2021. Hello out there. I'm very pleased to have you here checking out the podcast. As always, thanks for doing that. Uh, if you like foreign exchanges, if you uh, enjoy this interview, appreciate this interview, please come check out the newsletter, fx.substack.com. Uh, consider signing up for our free email list where you'll receive future interviews as well as plenty of coverage of U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. If you really like it, uh, please consider becoming a subscriber and supporting the newsletter. That would be great, although I don't want to rush anybody into anything. Uh, you know, patience. Uh, but really, seriously, thanks for being here. Uh, it's been a lively couple of weeks uh, in U.S. foreign policy, as you likely know by now. Uh, last week, President Joe Biden announced uh, that he is pulling U.S. military forces out of Afghanistan, ending the nearly 20-year U.S. conflict in that country, not really ending the war that we started, uh, but ending uh, America's direct combatant role in it Probably there are some questions about uh, what exactly this withdrawal is going to look like, but I don't think we need to uh, litigate those right now. Uh, Biden announced that the withdrawal will begin starting May 1st and continue in phases through the 20th anniversary of the September 11th, 2001 attacks. Uh, that, of course, was the event or those were the events uh, that sparked the war on terror, of which Afghanistan was the first and remains the longest and most obvious manifestation. Uh, so major development, uh, really. And we've got a big uh, double-sized episode of foreign exchanges here to talk about it, so I don't want to uh, spend much more time on the introduction. Uh, we've got two interviews here lined up for you guys, and one of them includes two people. So three people being interviewed, which is a record, has to be a record, I think, uh, for foreign exchanges. Uh, the first, uh, first, I'm going to be joined here in a moment uh, by Mena Ayazi and Kate Kaiser. Mena is a program officer at uh, the Search for Common Ground, and Kate, uh, you may already know, uh, is a contributor to foreign exchanges, as well uh, as the policy director at Win Without War. Uh, they're going to be here to talk about sort of uh, their thoughts on uh, the decision to withdraw, uh, on what it means for U.S. foreign policy, on what it means for Afghanistan, and uh, what the United States can do now uh, to try to help build a durable Afghan society that does not immediately sort of fall prey to the Taliban, uh, which I don't think anybody wants to see happen, uh, maybe except for the Taliban. Uh, but, you know, it's something that, that we've done a lousy job of establishing any kind of durable institution that could prevent that from happening. Uh, so uh, they're going to have some ideas for things that the United States could do to sort of change its focus away from the kind of hyper uh, focus on the upper level politics and the military aspect uh, in Afghanistan and maybe uh, build some grassroots and ground up uh, efforts to try and stabilize that society. 
Uh, after uh, Mena and Kate join me, I'm going to be joined by Fatima Aman, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Fatima is a returning guest. Uh, she's been on the program before to talk about Iran. Uh, today, she's going to talk about uh, the regional aspects of this withdrawal and what it means for um, Afghanistan, for the Afghan people, but also for the countries around Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan being the most obvious, Iran, Russia, China. China, India, what role those countries can play now uh, in trying to, again, prevent a, a Taliban takeover or prevent Afghanistan from falling into, uh, you know, even deeper into chaos uh, when the U.S. withdraws. Uh, so with that, uh, like I said, I don't want to spend, uh, too much more time here in the introduction because it is going to be a jam-packed, uh, episode. So let me get, uh, Mena and Kate on the line and we'll start the show. Okay, so as promised in the intro, I'm being joined by Kate Kaiser and Mena Ayazi. Uh, Kate is the policy director for Win Without War. She's a columnist at Inkstick and also at Foreign Exchanges. Uh, Mena is a program officer at Search for Common Ground, uh, and they are both here to sort of uh, share some thoughts about what comes next, about the withdrawal itself, what it means, um, and, and to sort of uh, you know, tell us what what the United States could maybe do here in the next few months and beyond uh, to try to replace what has clearly been a failed policy with something that might have a chance of, of working. Uh, so Kate and Mena, thank you both for being on the program. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us, Derek. So I, I guess I wanted to start um, with a very general question. Uh, when you first heard Biden's announcement that, that the United States is withdrawing by September 11th, um, what were your sort of first impressions? And were they different from, I feel like it was a little more final, but were they different from, you know, when the when Donald Trump announced his big May 1st withdrawal that I don't think anybody actually thought was going to happen? Um, do you did you what, what did what were your kind of as people who as you've both worked in this space kind of, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, trying to change U.S. foreign policy and, you know, the effects of the forever war and, and uh, just. Uh, what what were your thoughts, your initial thoughts when you heard the announcement? So I'm happy to go first. I mean, I it I agree. It did feel more uh, of a final decision um, that there was actually uh, that there's actually you know political backing um, for moving forward with operational plans to withdraw. I think that's a you know a key difference. Um, from Trump at least, who I think no one actually thought he would be focusing on like the operational details of implementing that deal, right? Um, but at the same time, the Obama administration also, you know, drew down troops. I, I do think what um, is important is I think that the president's decision signals a possible opportunity to end this kind of endless debate about troop levels and time horizons in Afghanistan and actually talk about what are the constructive approaches that the US can take diplomatically um, as well as through other non-military tools to support 
an inclusive um, and inter-Afghan peace process to resolve what is a four decades long conflict. Um, but you know, I, I think the deadline is very helpful, and I do think that um, the president himself, you know, uh, feels very strongly about withdrawing from Afghanistan, which is very very positive. But a lot of things can happen between now and September. <laughs> <laughs> and that's certainly true. Yes. Yeah, just uh, following up on Kate, um, pretty similar reaction. I mean, the reality is we all knew this day was going to come, right? Whether it be under Obama or Trump or Biden, it was going to come. And it's quite frankly, a, a pretty uh, a bipartisan initiative. Members of, uh, uh, of our government across all different political lines want to withdraw from Afghanistan. So we knew this was going to come eventually. Um, but the fear really was around and like when as kate mentioned when when biden announced it, it was a much more you know firm decision and so the fear really came um around you know what is this withdrawal gonna what's the impact going to be on the peace talks right what's going to happen with the levels of violence in afghanistan are there going to be new warring parties that come up you know what is the sense among the afghan people um there's a lot of panic and alarm amongst grassroots activists and there's also fear around what's going to happen with international aid and the progress man on women's rights and healthcare and education. So, you know, it's not just military withdrawal, but there's so much more complexity behind what this decision actually means for the country, for the people and for the region. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see um, how these different decisions and the complexity of the conflict are going to play a role in the actual strategy that the administration is going to take to, to withdraw more troops. So I, I, I want to follow up on that, and it's that's that's a, I think it's a, an important point, and it's one that um, I think is important to make and to stress that this is not you know as as good as it you know may feel from the perspective of um, you know finally ending the war, finally you know kind of uh, affecting some change to to the war on terror or U.S. foreign policy. Uh, there are a lot of potential downsides here, especially in Afghanistan for, for civil society. Um, I wanted, wanted to talk about, uh, or, you know, maybe you could, you could, you know, talk a little bit about this. What are, um, what are some of the approaches that you would like to see the United States take now? Um, you know, I think we're in a situation where, as you say, there have been these gains for women, gains for other kind of marginalized groups uh, that are at risk. Um, the, the challenge or the problem that I see there is, um, you know, if the only way, you know, we're 20 years into the U.S., uh, you know, having a military role in Afghanistan. And if we haven't secured those gains in some way other than military occupation by now, uh, I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> we're going to be able to do that unless there is a major change in approach. Uh, what are what are some of the tools that you would like to see the United States use to, to try to build on those gains and secure the ones that have that have already been made in this you know period where uh, obviously there's going to be a lot of upheaval? Yeah, great question, Derek. And and to your point, right, is like we've been, or the U.S. has been in Afghanistan for two decades. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of money that has been invested in this country. So at this point, to just say we're going to completely withdraw would be a mistake, not just for our strategy, but also for, um, for the future of the country. So I think the number one thing would be to restart the peace talks with the Taliban, and not just with the Taliban, but really make it an inclusive 
inter and intra Afghan peace process, right? One that's engaging people from local villages, local cities, local contexts, to people who are working in the government and to diaspora uh, groups around the world. Um, that's the interesting complexity behind the Afghan conflict, right? It's like it's the number one uh, population of refugees um, over the past few decades has, has continuously been Afghan people um, simply because of the conflict, right? Um, so obviously it has fluctuated with, with Syria and other groups, but uh, the complexity behind diaspora involvement, I think, is really important. So just really creating an inclusive peace process. Um, I mean, there was only one woman in in, in the most recent uh, delegation that that was supposed to go to uh, uh, to Doha, um, and that went to to Moscow. So. If we're not actually actively engaging the people who most need to be at the table, we're not going to have a peace agreement or negotiation or anything that's going to last for a longer time and be accepted by the broader audience. And I think most importantly, young people, right? Two thirds of the Afghan population is below the age of 30, yet not a single young person was also in the delegation. So it's really about our strategy. And we have the policies, right? The Women, Peace, Security strategy. Uh, we have a lot of appetite around a youth peace and security strategy to really um, make our peace processes uh, more inclusive. I would say a second thing is to make sure that we maintain um, a presence around our development work, right? All of the work we've done um, to improve healthcare, education, and so many other fields is really important. And that's support we need to continuously give. Um, and we don't need to go into the stats because we all know Afghanistan has some of the worst healthcare stats, some of the worst education stats. But like I said, this generation is the youngest um, outside of the continent of Africa and Afghanistan. And it's also the most educated generation Afghanistan has seen in a long time. So it would be a real big shame to, 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 to let that go and not continue to support them to really develop uh, the country and the future that they want to see. And Derek, can I just deeply plus one all of Mena's points? Um, <laughs> and I just want to also take a step back because what she is talking about is not only applicable for U.S. strategy in Afghanistan, but also all of the other conflicts that the U.S. is involved in and ostensibly trying to resolve. Um, you know, I think like one of the the challenges in U.S. just grand strategy is we're constantly in this like crisis response approach instead of thinking about our diplomatic development, peace building tools that can actually build peace from the bottom up while we also work at, from the top down, which is what really Mena is really talking about. It's not just relevant to Afghanistan. You know, we've been calling for the same thing in Yemen. And I think, you know, one of the failings of the experience of Bosnia that people talk about is the fact that there was not, there was this lack of a, there was this lack of a, a investment um, in building relationships um, across the broad uh, uh, communities that lived in Bosnia. And part of what's been pointed out is that the U.S. constantly focuses on a political settlement um, in many of these conflicts as like the key thing that is going to build peace, whereas we need to take a much longer view because a, a political settlement amongst armed actors is always going to be tenuous because as Menno was talking about, they're not the ones with the 
the truly long-term vet um, who are vested in peace um, and want to build a peaceful society. And we see this across conflicts. And I, I wish it was something that policymakers would wake up to um, that by continuing to pursue um, just agreements between armed actors, you're actively holding the ho population hostage to those ar armed actors versus including those folks who could actually potentially take the momentum away from the people with guns. What are some of the ways, and and you know, I, I I would welcome both of you to comment on this. What are what are some of the ways to to do that? I, I think you know the the kinds of programs you're talking about are are crucial. They would be, um, you know, to it would be much better for the United States to emphasize, uh, kind of you know, ground up sorts of programs rather than top down. Clearly, which is not working. Um, but at some point you do run into, uh, I think, a couple of problems in this case. One is that the Taliban uh, have decided they're not interested in the peace process anymore because, of course, Biden did, uh, in a technical sense, uh, blow through the deadline that they thought they had agreed to with the Trump administration. Uh, and they're angry about that. Um, so that's that's on the, the one side. On the other side, the Afghan government side, you run into the fact that despite the emphasis on uh, kind of, you know, top-down political solution, despite the fact that that's where the, the focus of the United States has been for 20 years, we still have not in any sense been able to build any kind of durable institutional capacity in the Afghan government. Clearly, I mean, corruption is still a huge problem. There's still, you know, big parts of the country that are under the control basically of warlords, even, you know, places that are nominally, uh, quote unquote, government controlled and not Taliban controlled or under the control of these kind of regional uh, military heavies. Um, and the, the military even, I mean, the one thing that, you know, the United States spends the most time kind of trying to build up uh, does not seem to have developed much capacity uh, despite all of that attention. Uh, how do you either get around the challenges of, of, you know, the institutional problem or the, the uh, kind of challenges that are faced with these, with the guys with guns um, or, you know, bring, you know, repair them, I guess, in a sense, or, you know, what, what's the, what's the approach to kind of dealing with those problems? Yeah, those are uh, some hefty problems, but, um, and, and, you know, this is, this is a reality of any country that has gone through nearly five decades of just nonstop violence, right? Like these systems and these institutions are going to be really difficult to, um, to really strengthen. And I think that the country has done a really great job with U.S. support to really start building those foundations for democracy. Um, however, there's one really key piece, and I'm going to say this again, two-thirds of the population is below the age of 30, yet very few of them have been represented in all of these high-level negotiations, political processes, or in the government. To really fix what is going on in Afghanistan, we need to empower and partner with young people who are actively working for peace. I'll give you an example. Um, this past August, over 200 uh, youth-led and youth youth-led organizations and youth activists came together um, for something called the National Youth Consensus for Peace. Um, they uh, brought over 2,000 young people across the country together, issued 27 resolutions um, to really voice their demands and propositions to the government and international community um, for what they want to see the government to, to turn into and what they want the future of Afghanistan to look like. Um, I think through that kind of public demand 
through a movement of young people, of just average Afghans within Afghanistan, diaspora members around the world, and just average Americans really advocating um, to to really create an inclusive Afghanistan, I think we can do a lot to fix a lot of these problems. Young people do not want more violence. They do not want more conflict. Um, and so if the majority of the population does not want Afghanistan to continue the way it is, we need to make sure that they're meaningfully uh, included and that we're partnering with them uh, to really set those foundations and create the institutions that we want uh, the country to have um, and that the country themselves itself wants to have. So I think that that's a really key piece here. And I think the, the continued international support um, for Afghan, uh, Afghanistan's young people is going to be really key in making that happen. And I'll just add, I think, in terms of structural reforms um, that are fundamentally, would fundamentally like focus on restructuring how the U.S. conducts diplomacy and development around the world, but I also think like can be implemented uh, or start to be implemented quickly. Um, so I think first and foremost, just to take it back to like a grand strategy point, what what the Biden team is saying is that they're centering universal human rights in their foreign policy. But what we haven't seen yet is them define, um, you know, supporting universal human rights as a core national interest versus something that just supports U.S. national interests. And I think to really, if we actually want to fulfill um, the rhetoric that um, the Biden administration is being used, we have to fundamentally elevate um, human rights as a core national interest that is just as important as the military interests as well as economic, you know, power interests and all these other things. Um, but I also think it requires a different way of looking at what the US role in the world is. Um, I think that, you know, in my view, um, US foreign policy should be first and foremost focused on doing no harm, and then secondly, focused on how it can build and respect human dignity, um, whether inside its borders or outside them. And, you know, that requires the U.S. to be a facilitator um, to what, uh, you know, activists, um, impacted communities, and others are calling for in their countries. And I don't think it it relies on us, quote unquote, nation building to do that. I think, you know, the, the reality is, is that if, if, if you look at the history of nation building, it is, it, it is decades, if not longer process um, for countries to build the types of institutions that we, you know, we sent in our military and expected them to build over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. And so I think as part of this kind of new way of thinking about the US uh, role in the world, there's two primary things um, that uh, the new administration could pursue, I think, to make this a, what we're talking about more of a reality. I think first, um, it's th a new way of thinking about uh, development funding um, and assistance. Uh, right now, um, as we were talking about, development approaches are often, um, except in certain accounts um, within USAID, um, it's often a top-down approach. It is not, the money is programmed for specific contracts or specific projects. Um, it's often not flexible. Um, and so what flexible funding means is that basically the funding is adaptable. Um, and so the, the, the contracts are much more thematic and focused on capacity building. Um, and so there's, there's already accounts at USAID um, that can be expanded and modeled after. 
Um, but there's also initiatives like things like community foundations, which is where international donors basically work with local civil society to set up a local community foundation that then makes the decisions about what local projects are funded and what would actually build security um, locally. And it also takes kind of the politicization out of of the assistance, because I think, again, it's going back to the fact that the US is not necessarily dictating the outcomes. It's the fact that we are investing in long term in ways to build long term resiliency. Um, and I think the second way um, that we could actively pursue this in the immediate term is that, you know, the the State Department was gutted by the Trump administration. And so there is this whole project of kind of building back the expertise um, and the institution itself. And I think within that, there's a question about how we want to rebuild the State Department. And I think for, for so long, our diplomacy, especially through state, has been so embassy centric and so government to government centric. And you know, in the last two decades, even more military to military. Um, and I think that, you know, we there's amongst the the foreign service but also former members of the military there is a desire to work in riskier environments than they're allowed to engage in engage with broader um, swaths of the population than they're allowed to engage in now and so i think that there's a case for a different type of diplomatic corps that is willing to work in fragile um, areas and basically deepen and build the relationships between those actors and the US government. So as Mena was talking about, we can bring those folks into the policy making discussions and decisions. And it's not necessarily a box checking exercise, but it's fundamental to actually the US upholding its own national interests and supporting universal human rights. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you guys to get in a little bit to the hypothetical here. Um, but I would like both of you to talk about um, what you would like to see as sort of immediate next steps um, for the United States. And Mena, you know, you could, you know, with your experience with, uh, you know, actually talking to, to sort of uh, people in Afghanistan, you know, what you think they're hopes are for next steps from the United States. And, and you know, that can be uh, at a small level, at the, at the local level, but also, you know, going as far as uh, there's got to be some kind of arrangement that takes place here, some kind of interim government or new elections seem to be the two competing uh, kind of ideas here uh, in terms of what's going to manage the peace process in Kabul, the United States has uh, sort of proposed or flirted with the idea of uh, dissolving the current Afghan government and forming an interim government with some Taliban input. Um, you know, Ashraf Ghani uh, has not been in favor of that, interestingly. You know, oddly enough, doesn't want to lose his job. Um, you know, he's proposed going straight to a new election. That's gotten a lot of pushback from uh, the Taliban and from the United States uh, as well. Um, you know, but in terms of just those immediate steps over the next, uh, you know, whatever it is now, I guess a little bit less than five months as the U.S. pulls out and uh, the period after that when there is supposed to be, and we don't know because of the Taliban's response here, uh, but when there is supposed to be a peace process going on, what role would you like to see the United States play and what sort of concrete steps would you like uh, to see the United States take? 
Yeah, great question. Uh, number one is just re-encourage uh, the Taliban to rejoin the uh, the peace talks. Um, it's really unfortunate that, you know, the the talks have uh, taken a pause for now, but that's, I think, the most critical piece in all of this right now and most immediately. Um, there are, uh, you know, the State Department, the UN, EU, all of these other players also, they, they international players also have a really big role to play in this. So, um, you know, as, a, as the leader in, 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 uh, in this, in this, uh, uh, in the negotiations and the peace talk, we should really partner with our allies um, to really create uh, an inclusive peace process. Uh, encourage the Taliban to come back to the table. I mean, we know that violence is not inevitable, right? Conflict is, but violence is not. And there are a number of of people within the Taliban who also pursue, who also wish to pursue nonviolence. And so, really finding those. Uh, you know, players within the Taliban, within different warring parties um, that want to be engaged in peace talks, bringing them back to the table, um, really ensuring that we have a great coalition of women activists, of youth activists, of people from different ethnic and religious minorities that also come so that it's not, as Kate said, just a political settlement, but really something um, and a peace process that's looking a little bit more long-term. Um, another really key uh, piece here, I think, is just continuing to ensure the Afghan people that America is not abandoning them. That's the biggest fear right now. Um, women's activists, for example, are really, really stressed. Um, there was a video that was recently released of a woman getting beat um, in a public square, which is just a, a reignition of trauma from, you know, the Taliban days in the 90s. And that's that's not the future of, of um, Afghanistan that they want to see. So just like really reassuring them that, uh, you know, America is here to help and it's not there to abandon them and just, you know, um, so I think that's, that's a really key piece here. Uh, and that happens through listening to what Afghan people have to say. And so that inclusivity within the peace process or any negotiations is really key. I think signing a ceasefire is also really important. Um, the last thing I think anybody wants to see is an increase in violence. So just really making sure that we're taking all the steps possible to not let that happen. Um, I think lastly, uh, really ensuring that, you know, COVID-19 is hitting Afghanistan really, really hard. Like it's not just the violence, but it's the pandemic. Um, there's so many other crises happening uh, right now, especially during Ramadan, right? Like this is a holy month um, for the Afghan, for the majority of Afghan people. So there's a lot going on and we just need to be sensitive to, you know, the situation, to the context, to the people and make sure that they know that they, that their voices matter in this process and um, that the U.S. government's taking all the steps it possibly can do to engage them in all, uh, in all uh, steps of this process. And I think lastly, you know, Know, it worked really well in South Africa, but you know, Afghanistan, five decades of war has a really big toll on people. So the trauma, the injustices, all of that is really manifesting right now, right? Like I mentioned with the example of the woman getting beat. So any type of a reconciliation or justice process that uh, can be implemented by the uh, or created with support from the U.S. government, I think will be important. Um, in Colombia, there's a really great case of a victims forum where young people led that process. And it was really healing for the community as, you know, the FARC rebels and the Colombian government were going through um, going through negotiations themselves. So I think there's also examples from around the world that we can pull from uh, where it's not just focused on negotiations and political 
settlements, but also just really supporting um, the actual people who have gone through the violence and the conflict to heal, to move forward, to think about what the future looks like and to be try to be as optimistic as possible, even when the circumstances don't seem as optimistic. So I think there's a number of things that the U.S. government can do, um, and there's a lot of really great roadmaps for doing it. Um, but of course, Afghanistan is so, such a complex uh, country. The conflict is so complex. So um, really engaging Afghan people from day one to create that roadmap and that plan is going to be um, really important as well. And totally agree with that. And I think what Mena was just talking about really represents a choice point for the administration. Um, you know, I think overall, the U.S. has largely res been resistant um, to accountability, particularly in the sphere of national security. And I do think that, like many of the other conflicts that the U.S. is involved in around the world, that accountability um, is a key aspect of actually building sustainable peace. Um, and there's a variety of ways to do that, you know, through transitional justice and transformative justice mechanisms. Um, but the U.S., the, you know, thus far, while you know, one of its roadmap that it proposed does talk about transitional justice, it really focuses on, on reconciliation. And while that's important, um, the U.S. itself has committed so many abuses in Afghanistan, along with um, funding other actors who are committing abuses. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the CIA um, covert program of oh, yes. various yes. non-state violent groups in Afghanistan. Um, and I think, you know, the, the question I have um, is, are we, you know, in Biden's announcement um, announcing the withdrawal, he made all of these amazing points about why endless war does not serve the American people, let alone the Afghan people um, or anywhere else that it's happening. And yet he did not apply that same logic to the other, you know, endless war, um, post 9-11 wars that the U.S. is involved in around the world, you know, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, elsewhere, um, throughout, you know, Africa. Um, and I, I think if we as a country do not take this opportunity as part of a withdrawal to fully reckon with all that has gone on, why we invaded this country in the first place, the, the real costs, especially the human costs, um, not just to Americans, but to Afghans um, in this conflict. And think about how we can actually provide reparations for those abuses. And I do think that's where, you know, if the US said it wanted to focus on accountability in the peace process, I am sure that there, you know, while there might, there would definitely be hesitation with um, uh, members of the warring parties, I do think that there, that is not, you know, um, foreign to the UN. It's something that the UN typically supports, but uh, members of the Security Council often block. And so um, <laughs> I, I do think that focusing there um, is critical. And it, as Mena was talking about, there's been success um, in other contexts um, for those bottom-up approaches where you are centering victims' rights um, and what has happened. But I think just on a fundamental basis, following through with the withdrawal is critical. Um, if you know, my understanding from folks from folks who've worked with the military in Afghanistan is that despite it only being a couple of thousand troops, um, you know, the U.S. Um, presence as well as the international NATO force presence is very, very obvious. And so what I've been told is that if, you know, the U.S. starts drawing down, it's going to, that's going to be clear to the Taliban. And, 
you know, I do think that that is something that they have long said that that is what they want in order to negotiate. And I think that it's, it's time to put that to the test, right? And see if what they've been saying in terms of not wanting to return to the pariah state that they were in the 90s, right? They want to somehow um, guarantee some form of women's rights. Obviously, that's like to be determined and a whole lot of questions there. But I, I do think that if we're actually going to try to pursue a new approach, we have to do that fundamentally on the whole. It can't just be withdrawn, then continue the same kind of course of action and then dipping in when we decide it's in our counterterrorism interests. Well, so on that point, <laughs> yes, uh, you've segued into my next question. Uh, um, I, I wanna get you both to comment on sort of the regional context. Um, I'm gonna, after, uh, we're finished. I'm going to have uh, Fatima Aman, uh, who's a sort of regional uh, specialist, on to talk more about kind of uh, the regional aspects of this. And uh, I don't know if I'm like spoiling the magic for the listeners, but I've already actually interviewed her, even though her interview is coming next. This is how the sausage is made. Um, <laughs> I'm pulling back the curtain. Um but, you know, one of the things that she talks about is, uh, or she, you know, talked about in our interview was the uh, importance of, of now being able to really build a regional approach to managing what comes next in Afghanistan. And you have a lot of countries uh, around Afghanistan, some of them, you know, not very friendly with the United States, China, Russia, uh, Iran. Uh, who have all engaged with the Taliban on some level and in part have engaged with the Taliban as a way to kind of, you know, jab the United States. And with that out of the way, they're now, you know, we're now, you now confront a situation where none of these countries really want to see the Taliban take control of Afghanistan again, because it that didn't really work out for any of them the first time. Um, and so they there's an incentive kind of broadly speaking for all these countries to start pulling uh, in in the direction of trying to sort of help support uh, some of the things you know you guys have been talking about, and so that that's the first aspect of this. You know, I, I was I'm hoping you 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 can comment on the second aspect is sort of the the downside here, which you know there was a, a New York Times article last week, shortly after Biden made the announcement that said, well, the United States isn't really leaving completely. We're negotiating with, you know, Central Asian countries about kind of just moving our counterterrorism operations next door and maintaining uh, the ability to carry out drone strikes in Afghanistan, maintaining, uh, you know, some level of counterterrorism operatives that could conceivably carry out operations in Afghanistan. Uh, and this seems to me to be a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways, but especially for Afghanistan to sort of uh, just, you know, to have it go from uh, being, I guess, a more comprehensive U.S. war zone to becoming, uh, you know, the new Libya or the new, you know, sort of uh, Yemen for a while before the civil war started, kind of just the place where the United States pops in for a few hours, does a drone strike or does a uh, you know, does a counterterrorism operation and leaves, which is destabilizing, you know, destabilizing in its own way. Uh, so that's the second aspect. I, I wonder if you guys could can comment on on both of those things in, in terms of the uh, the sort of context of, of all this. Sure, I'm happy to start. Um, oh, Derek, you ask like such large questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, I think, I think the point about regional diplomacy is so, so key. And it's something that, you know, the Obama administration did somewhat, but I think a bit half-heartedly because it wasn't fully focused there. Um, and, you know, I, I think it'll be a test ultimately for whether um, the U.S. actually wants to uh, engage in multilateralism again, in a way, um, because, you know, the countries that should be included that you were talking about, Russia, China, Iran, India, um, you know, they do have a vested interest in the future of Afghanistan. Um, I should have mentioned Pakistan as well, of course, um, but they all do have competing interests. I think the U.S. could play a helpful role deconflicting potentially or finding areas of agreement to align um, the regional approach behind. Uh, at the same time, it also requires the U.S. to recognize that it's not a, necessarily a superpower anymore, right? We are living in a multipolar world and many of these co intractable conflicts that we're involved in um, require multilateral solutions where the US doesn't just get to dictate what happens. And that's a completely um, new kind of worldview <laughs> that I don't think is uh, necessarily the, uh, the overarching worldview of the entire administration. I think certainly there are some who might believe that. Um, on the CT question, you know, I think that it's not surprising, unfortunately. You know, I think that um, the president has talked about and committed to ending endless wars, but it does not seem his team has actually fundamentally reckoned with whether or not counterterrorism even works um, and is effective in actually addressing the security challenge posed by non-state violent groups, um, because in actuality, all, you know, there's 20 years of evidence now that it doesn't work. And so the, the administration's um, reported plan about transferring much of the endless war framework from, you know, active U.S. military operations to being under what's called Title 10 um, authorities, uh, which basically are like train and equip authorities where the U.S. goes transform militaries or provides them military equipment and weapons. Um, but there's no... Uh, a, there's no evidence that that approach actually builds peace um, or brings security to instability. Um, and secondly, it then basically outsources these wars to even more abuses foreign security of forces. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has committed its own um, share of abuses, but at the same time, you know, at least there's some at least some level of transparency, even though it's dismal at this point. So, you know, I think that it's just... It's a sad um, choice just in terms of the fact that I think ultimately if we continue, you know, dipping in and droning countries when we decide that someone is a quote unquote threat to the United States, um, we're ultimately going to continue to fuel instability and conflict around the world um, because we are, we are you know, basically taking unilateral action that fundamentally undermines human security. Yeah, I, I fully agree with Kate, and I don't have too much to add. I think I'll just reiterate again that uh, the grassroots inclusion, the inclusion of average people, not just in Afghanistan, but in the surrounding countries is also equally important. Um, there's 
so many Afghan refugees in Pakistan, in Iran, um, that are really ready to come go back home. Um, and a lot of them are waiting for withdrawal to happen. Uh, and I, I think that those surrounding countries are going to play a really big role um, in ensuring that, you know, withdrawal goes smoothly, that refugees return uh, back to Afghanistan, um, and, and that regional cooperation is just going to play a really key role. And it, not just in, in violence and in the military, but natural resources. Um, there was just recently a conflict on the Iranian-Afghan border around a water source. Um, there is a pipe being built from north to southern Afghanistan um, to move oil. And so uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the conflict has uh, you know, hidden the fact that there's so much more going on in the region that we need to also be focusing on. Um, on top of all of that, the pandemic, um, the surrounding countries are also facing a really hard time uh, with COVID-19. So just really taking a holistic and comprehensive approach to regional cooperation, I think is going to be really important, not just with, you know, violence and the conflict, but like I said, across all these different fronts. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Kay. One of the things uh, you you sort of alluded to, I think, is is in terms of transparency. And one of the things that uh, I would also add is a concern that nobody's talking about overtly is the possibility of contractors being more involved in Afghanistan and, and kind of you know 100%. private private forces. And uh, you know they're already you know already involved, but but you know maybe even more involved moving forward. And and you know as you say the the level of transparency for the United States is bad enough, but the level of transparency for these groups is just non-existent. It's it's completely opaque. Uh, so that that's another you know potential area of concern. Uh, yeah, um, and it you know it, it's also in the context of the UN finding Eric Prince is violating the arms embargo on <laughs> Libya, right? So I I think it you know it comes yeah that back guy to, yeah that guy. I mean it comes back to this point about accountability. Are we actually going to hold like the various ways that we as a country are destabilizing um, other countries, right? And in this uh, reset of U.S. policy towards the world, and unfortunately, I'm not seeing it yet. I think to to take us, uh, you know, kind of close us off here. I, I thought we'd go a little bit bigger than Afghanistan. And Kate, you, I mean, you've already started to talk about some of this stuff, but you wrote a piece for FX, uh, kind of assessing the Biden foreign policy. And of course it, it was prior to this announcement, um, you know, and your, your assessment was despite, you know, his sort of uh, campaign talk about building a new foreign policy for the middle class and, you know, all this kind of uh, rhetoric about changing things. Um, he's he's so far been a, a pretty standard establishment president from a foreign policy perspective. Um, I wonder if this announcement would did this announcement kind of change your opinion at all, um, or you know do you do you feel like maybe it's too soon to say, or you know is it sort of uh, what was your impression of that? And Mena, I think, you know, um, if you could just kind of, uh, you know, talk about your impressions of Biden so far in general, um, you know, with this announcement in mind, but, but you know, uh, uh, kind of across the board, what is your impression of the way he's conducted foreign policy so far? Someone actually asked me that the other day, like almost verbatim. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, 
my answer was no, it doesn't change my view at all. <laughs> um, and we vociferously support the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the president's decision to withdraw. It is a good decision. It is the right decision. But it's a first step. And it is not a fundamental reset. And it is not, as I wrote in my FX piece, it's not capitalizing on the level of state and economic failure that COVID-19 has revealed, um, let alone Trump, right? And, you know, I think what's important to point out is that the same day that the president announced the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, the administration also said that it was going to green light uh, continued weapon sales, many of them uh, issued, uh, initiated by Trump to the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And many of these weapons can and are likely potentially to be used in that conflict um, if it continues. So, you know, I think that that is just such a, such a black and white example um, of, you know, a good decision here and then a terrible decision <laughs> there, right? And I think like, it just fundamentally undermines all of the rhetoric that the administration is using, um, because you know it, I, and I think comparing this to the talks in Anchorage um, with China are a really great example. You know, I, I expected the administration um, to take a more humble approach internationally. The Trump spent four years basically tearing down as much as he could everything um, that you know, quote unquote, internationalists had built um, or took them to their logical, violent, um, racist conclusion in many ways. And rather than, you know, approaching countries and saying like, we wanna take a different approach, we have concerns, particularly about human rights, but we also understand that like, cooperation is fundamentally needed in the 21st century because of the transnational threats that we're facing. Um, but instead, largely, we've seen them take a very, very antagonistic approach where they basically decided to not only sanction Chinese officials the night before the meeting, but then lecture them on human rights in front of journalists, um, which was, a, you know, just not necessarily helpful in terms <laughs> of like resetting. Not, not cooperative. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then you look at a, a situation like what the administration is doing with Saudi Arabia, and I have, you know, I'm very confident that they are actually engaging meaningfully in diplomacy um, on Yemen. But at the same time, they are continuing to allow Saudi Arabia and the UAE to get off scot-free, and they are not fundamentally um, pushing the parties like they need to, to fully um, actually withdraw the blank check for impunity that the US has given those two monarchies in particular for decades at this point. So, you know, I, I like really want to be hopeful, um, particularly after how the Yemen um, decision was prioritized in early February. But unfortunately, unless there's a clear pivot soon, it seems that the more hawkish elements of the establishment that have been brought into the administration are going to win the day. Yeah, it's uh, hard to follow up on Kate, but I, I guess I'll give more of the, um, I'd say that the grassroots side of looking at foreign policy is, I mean, there's really, like Kate said, there's 
positives and negatives, right? Like one good decision is, is equalized by another uh, not so great decision. Um, but the reality with the U.S.'s foreign policy is so systemically rooted in the way that the U.S. talks about politics and the way the American public approaches politics. And that foreign policy is usually the last point of discussion amongst everyone. And I think that is changing and it's changing largely because of this generation. For example, um, when uh, when George Floyd was uh, murdered last summer, protests didn't just erupt in the U.S., they erupted globally. I saw an Instagram post this morning of murals of George Floyd's face um, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in South Africa, in Europe, all over the world. This trans-locality of conflict, of injustices, really resonates with the young generation. And grassroots activists in the U.S. are starting to adopt foreign policy in their larger platforms. And that's really key here, is really ensuring that young people, that average voters are, in, are thinking about foreign policy in their day-to-day when they go to the ballot, um, to the ballot box, when they are making decisions about their politics in the country that they want to see, foreign policy needs to be integral to that, right? The Pentagon budget just increased under the Biden administration. That's not what we want to see. And that's something that we need to change. And it's only going to change if the American people raise their voices and say that we want it to change. Um, Search for Common Ground, for example, co-chairs the U.S. Youth Peace and Security Coalition, where we're trying to do exactly that. Connect young activists in the U.S. working on climate, racial justice, so many other different issues within the U.S. to really make foreign policy holistic to their platforms as well, because things like colonialism and racial justice are not just, you know, unique to the U.S. or unique to what's happening abroad, but it's really connected and, 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 and central, especially with our translocality, and COVID-19 has shown that. And one thing that's really critical is that whatever happens after COVID, whatever happens with these wars or anything, history shows that it's young people who really are going to uh, take the time of social change and really, you know, shape what's going to happen. So we need to listen to young people. We need to listen to what the public wants. And really, we need to make sure that compassion is recentered in foreign policy and that average voices are included. And I want to just quickly add, diversifying the, uh, the foreign policy space is also really important. Um, there's a really huge lack of DIPOC folk, of diaspora folk that are engaging in these foreign policy discussions, when it is actually diaspora folk who have a dual stake in foreign policy, right? Not just as American citizens and as Americans, but also as people from the countries that the U.S. is actively engaged in. Um, So just really elevating these voices and creating and turning our foreign policy, not just into a policy discussion, but um, into something that average Americans talk about, I think is really important to changing the way the U.S. conducts foreign policy um, and makes foreign policy decisions, not under just the Biden administration or the Trump administration, but any other administration, regardless a political party that is yet to come. Amen, Meta. Yeah, that's a good place to, to I think it's a good place to end. Um, Meta Yazi from Search for Common Ground, Kate Kaiser from Women Without War. Thank you both for being on the program. Is there anything that you guys want people uh, to check out, plug in anything or, you know, any kind of program you... you- yeah, uh, Search actually just uh, got a delegation of five young people to go to the recent Istanbul talks. Um, and so we're really trying to elevate their voices, um, elevate young people's activism in the Afghan conflict in general. I also recommend people to follow the U.S. Uh, Youth Peace and Security Coalition, where we're really trying to uh, create a collaborative uh, way to improve and shape U.S. foreign policy. Um, we're on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find us online on Search for Common Ground's website. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, you can take action with and without war as well on um, not only ending the U.S. military occupation in Afghanistan, but also all of the other terrible things in foreign policy that we're trying to change and be back on. So um, I just want to thank you, Derek, for having us on. And thank you, Mena. I learned so much, as always. Thank you, Derek. And thank you, Kate. I learned uh, more from you as well. It's always a pleasure. Well, thank you both for coming on the program. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, we'll, we'll drop some links in the show description so people can check those things out and uh, highly recommend it. Uh, again, thank you both. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll uh, uh, maybe come back and revisit this at some point because it's going to be a long process. Indeed. Thanks so much. Thank you, Derek. All right. Again, that was Mena Ayazi and Kate Kaiser. Uh, again, to sort of, uh, I'm going to rush into the next interview so we don't make this episode any longer than it already is. Uh, but I'm uh, about to be joined here by Fatima Aman, uh, who again is a non-resident senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. Fatima is going to uh, talk about where things stand and where things are likely uh, to lead uh, following Biden's announcement in Afghanistan and in the region surrounding Afghanistan. Okay, uh, now I am being joined by Fatima Aman, uh, who is a non-resident senior fellow at the Middle East Institute. This is actually her second appearance uh, on the Foreign Exchanges podcast. Uh, she writes extensively on Iran, Afghanistan, uh, South Asia, the Middle East. She's done so for many, many years. Uh, she's a regular contributor to the Quincy Institute's Responsible Statecraft uh, website, uh, and uh, I am pleased, very pleased to have her back on the show uh, to talk about where things might be headed in Afghanistan. Fatima, thank you so much uh, for coming on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. This is, you are doing such a wonderful job, and I'm honored to be here uh, program you. thank you uh, so uh, i i want to kind of you know we've already talked uh, a little bit earlier in the show about kind of the u.s angle but I, I wanted to to bring you on specifically to talk about uh what the u.s withdrawal is likely to mean in afghanistan because it is, it is not and i think we need to acknowledge uh, as futile as this war has seemed for some time now uh, the U.S. withdrawal is not necessarily going to uh, be uniformly good for Afghanistan. So uh, I, I thought maybe why don't we start with sort of, um, you know, when you heard the announcement and you you kind of processed what it will mean or is likely to mean, um, what do you come away feeling like is the is the most likely outcome for Afghanistan, let's say, you know, a year from now or five years from now, um, you know, and not without necessarily going into a lot of detail, because we can sort of unpack from there. But where do you feel like uh, Afghanistan is is going to be heading? Uh, let me start with the original deadline that they uh, was set by the Trump administration, you know, May 1st, to uh, uh, complete withdrawal of our uh, U.S. forces uh, from Afghanistan. That was the agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban. So uh, with the new administration, there was actually some hope that uh, it would go beyond May 1st because that was really, uh, would have been rushed, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
drawdown and it would have been no one was prepared for that and almost everyone opposed that deadline um, so if it's a good thing now at least to drag it to september 11th so that you know there is there might be some preparation uh from the international uh forces inside afghanistan and also the government of Afghanistan, obviously, and also the neighbors who uh, promised to be fully engaged and help. So uh, the Taliban obviously is not happy because they would have preferred the uh, pullback of all foreign forces by May 1st. And they are threatening now not to participate in the uh, uh, Turkey uh, meeting, you know, conference. Right, the peace conference that the U.S. That's is... Right is organizing right inside afghanistan uh people are nervous uh they uh, draw parallel with what happened in uh you know late 90s in 1989 when the soviets pulled back from afghanistan and the uh, najib uh, dr najib's government uh, could hold to power until uh, 19, uh, 1992 1993. Uh, there was massive financial and military help from the Soviet Union, uh, but obviously it uh, didn't help and it was cut due to some economic, major economic issues in the former Soviet Union uh, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, obviously. And so people are now worried. Uh, the government is trying to uh, portray itself, actually act at least factions, at least part of the government is trying to portray itself as being able to hold on to power and and defend the country as they describe it, uh, you know, and combat uh, the insurgency. Uh, that is uh, not something that everyone believes in. Uh, so people in Afghanistan are worried, very worried. They are following the news and the events with really kind of uh, great concern. So um, some people are preparing to to depart from country from Afghanistan to uh, basically prepare for migration uh, if uh, Taliban would take uh, power in the uh, country through use of force and and uh, if they end up end with the uh, any kind of negotiations. The other hope, I, the hope is basically that the uh, regional countries would get engaged. I think that uh, the uh, Biden administrations get some credit for that, and not excluding any country over the other as the Trump administration did before. So they have called on immediate neighbors such as Iran and Pakistan, and now India, China and Russia, basically all regional players and people who, I mean, countries who have interest uh, inside Afghanistan and they benefit from a uh, Afghanistan that's not uh, turning into a civil war. Sure, sure. I want to, I want to get into the regional considerations a little bit, um, a little bit later, but, but to kind of press on the the feeling inside Afghanistan. One of the arguments, of course, that uh, has been trotted out really over several years, but but especially since Biden made this announcement to sort of defend the idea of 
um, more or less perpetual U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, because that's ultimately what it what it works out to, uh, is the idea that that there have been these gains made uh, in Afghan society by women, by uh, you know the, uh, protections for religious minorities, ethnic minorities, people who would not do very well, who are unlikely to do very well if the Taliban were to come back into power. Um, uh, I wonder, you know, if you, if you could talk a little bit about how widely those gains have been distributed, because it seems uh, like a lot of the conversation about, you know, women going to school or women having more opportunities is confined to Kabul and some major cities out in the countryside. I don't know that those gains have been felt. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, if you get out of the city and start talking to people whose main interaction with the U.S. war has been drone strikes, uh, you know, CIA funded uh, paramilitaries coming through to look for Taliban fighters, um, you know, warlords who have been empowered either by the U.S. or uh, sort of indirectly through the Afghan government to, to kind of rule over their uh, little fiefdoms. Um, you know, is, is it a universal feeling that um, th things could get bad when the U.S. departs, or is there some uh, sense, uh, would there be some sense of a relief that, that uh, at least that part of the war is is over. Uh, you're right. Actually, there are there is sense of uh, 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 relief, not by not just by uh, U.S. pulling back, but uh, in the hope that the fighting between the Taliban and the government would, or and with the foreign uh, forces, would end, and they would find their own peace. Uh, I have to mention that education for girls isn't really not something limited to Kabul and uh, to uh, major cities, but also in remote areas in Afghanistan, where uh, girls go to school. The funny thing is that now, because of the, you know, the concern that the international community has over these major achievements to be lost once the Taliban is in power, uh, BBC just recent, BBC Daddy just uh, recently, last week, had a report of, uh, you know, some areas under the Taliban rule and where the Taliban, uh, when the authorities, Taliban authorities are showing off their schools for girls and, you know, they are just uh, trying to convince the reporter that part of what you are hearing uh, outside about Taliban uh, limiting and restricting the girls from having education is just the, uh, is not is just not true. They show them the uh, schools. They let they show them you know that people are listening to music and all this. But there are also reports at the same time from some regions where they uh, you know school uh, schools for girls have been uh, closed. Uh, down uh, because the Taliban is not a, uh, you know, a major fan of uh, girls' education. So I think we can just uh, uh, compare the all these reports and conclude that they are 
in fact, some achievements, uh, you know, in civil societies in Afghanistan, uh, girls' education, they are also the right of religious minorities. I mean, compare uh, Hazara, Shia Hazara from being uh, really uh, under, uh, suppressed by the by former uh, government before uh, September 11th by Taliban regime with now having representatives in the uh, Lujai. So right. it, there is some achievements that could be lost, actually. But the hope is that the, uh, in, you know, the international community would keep its connection with, the, with Afghanistan, not completely leave the country to uh, Taliban if they come to power, and uh, would just you know, keep this common, uh, connection and, and, uh, um, and try to save what it can be saved. Right. I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think, you know, both the, from the, the perspective of the regional kind of players getting involved here, but also, you know, looking at, at it from the perspective of the, the amount of time that the United States has been there, if, if we haven't figured out a way to secure these gains, if the Afghan government and the U.S. haven't figured out a way to secure the gains that have made by, been made by women or the protections for the Hazara uh, without perpetual war, uh, you know, I don't know if, it's, if that would ever happen then. I mean, it, it's sort of like if, if you can't pull out now and protect those things, when are you ever going to be able to end this war and feel comfortable that these gains will be uh, kind of preserved? And I, I, I just don't know. Um, but you you raise an interesting point. I think you know that there are some regions where some areas where the Taliban is is sort of inviting uh, cameras in to say, "Hey, look, we've got you know people are singing and girls are going to school and look we're, we're you know we've we've changed." Uh, but then there are other regions where you hear about you know the Taliban shutting down girls' schools, and that gets I think to a to an issue. Uh, about the Taliban that, that kind of gets lost in, in the United States, which is this is not a monolithic group. It is, you know, comprised like any large political organization. There are factions, there are uh, cells even geographically separated from one another. And, and these groups all have, you know, somewhat different or may have somewhat different uh, agendas without the United States there to be the sort of focus of everybody's anger, hostility, you know, war effort, whatever you want to call it. Are there enough internal challenges that the Taliban could, could start to, to fall apart a little bit? Uh, you mentioned uh, the factions correctly. Unfortunately, this is something that's lost most of the time, you know, from the uh, analysis that we read and the news that comes from Afghanistan. Taliban is not a unified you know, centralized group that would, you know, put a constitution in place and would act based upon, accord, based on that, uh, uh, based on a constitution accordingly. Uh, they are, they have different factions. They are also, some are influenced from Pakistan. The other factions is, you know, influenced from uh, Iran just recently. So they, uh, the role of the regional uh, countries, that is where the spot where their role is going to be, should be actually more um, highlighted as using their own influence on the group and uh, 
to to basically not the country turn back into what it was before uh, during the uh, you know Al Qaeda uh, Taliban coalition. So something that they there is also a new generation of Taliban. Not all of them are the ones that we know. You know that the picture from Mullah Omar. Um, some have. Uh, educate some have uh, you know work outside the country some for some it is important to show that they are capable of govern Afghanistan and uh, but uh, they are also spoilers uh, you know we really can't tell how uh, the structure of Taliban because there are you know so many different uh, they, they contain so many groups and factions uh, and in different regions of Afghanistan they may have played different roles and uh, so the hope is that you know Pakistan for instance would use its influence on that part of the group or on that faction that you know they have closer relations or that Iran now uh, having hosted Taliban delegation so many times. Uh, the hope is that these countries would also use their own influence, uh, even if it's not much, on the Taliban to to act properly. You know, right. I mean, right. properly. I mean, not let the Afghanistan completely uh, to sort of backslide into you know what yes. it was in 1998. Let's say yes. Uh, um, I, I do want to talk more about the, the regional aspect of I, sort of one more kind of question inside Afghanistan. Um, one thing that you, you don't get, um, even as the Taliban has sort of gained ground and, and, you know, strengthened itself and gained more territory, uh, over the, you know, the past several years and kind of strengthened itself, um, you don't get a sense that it's particularly, popular uh, in Afghanistan that if people had their way, I mean, you know, to, to the extent that there's been polling done or that it's possible to do polling uh, in Afghanistan, you don't get a sense that the Taliban has an agenda that's very popular, that people would necessarily want the Taliban to supplant the current government, maybe to become part of, to become incorporated into the government, but not uh, to take over outright. Um, I wonder if, you know, without, again, without the United States there to serve as a sort of lightning rod, uh, or even to, you know, without the drones and the, the CIA paramilitaries kind of going around losing, you know, hearts and minds all over the country, um, are the Taliban, could the Taliban find themselves in a situation where the, without the U.S., their, their kind of inroad to the Afghan people is lost and they're, they're, they struggle to kind of, uh, hold on to a base of support? They, they are armed, Derek. And that is uh, what, you know, the final word. Whoever has more weapon at this point is going to have more power. And yes, you're uh, correctly uh, mentioned that, you know, the fact that some people in the regions where now uh, are under Taliban rule, uh, support the the their rulers support the Taliban doesn't mean that Taliban is really so popular the reason is that they have weapon and they have power right that they are in charge now and remember 
these people are tired of ongoing 40 years now in recent years you know in uh, after the september 11 for 20 years these people have been under uh, under pressure both from the uh, uh, government folks who would use their power to uh, to to you know to push for their will to be uh, sorry i'm just looking for uh, trying to use the board to find the board no i, I mean i, I mean, think I, I get it they they want the war to be over i mean it, it's like this is yes and remember and in some whoever era, can end the war that's that's, that's, a, that's a good thing in itself yes. right yes and you know even government folks have also been part of the issue in many parts of Afghanistan, you know, they also have taken revenge of uh, whoever they wanted. They uh, there is massive corruption around, uh, you know, across the Afghanistan. And uh, yes, I mean, Taliban comes not as liberator, uh, even nothing close to what they the role they played after uh, you know uh, they came to power uh, during the after the civil war in the 90s right now they are also not extremely happy people of afghanistan are not extremely happy with their uh, you know with their uh, with the way the government acts and the government functions right they have been you know under uh, pressure from either the Taliban or the government. So, and uh, for somebody who, if you lose your your loved ones, it really doesn't matter who is in power, you know. So you would just right. try to have your peace. And uh, I can only uh, justify it uh, in places. I can't. It only can explain in places where uh, where the Taliban is uh, more popular and sure. More sure. And unfortunately, um, let me also mention this, that the, uh, you know, foreign forces that the, especially United States, have in some cases been part of the problem, you know, uh, right. they, there is a, a, in the beginning, especially in the beginning, uh, right after the, uh, you know, occupation of Afghanistan after 2000, in 2001, and there was lack of an understanding of Afghans' culture, their tradition, their religion, you know, uh, and they made massive mistakes, uh, something that could have been uh, dragging all these issues until now. So uh, that is why the United States uh, troops were not always looked like, you know, cons uh, presumed or um, viewed as liberators they were also some in some places they were part of the problem regionally then to get into to sort of where i think the big shift could happen here with the u.s kind of getting out of the way in a sense um as you said earlier in the interview there are a number of countries uh russia china india uh afghanistan's close neighbors iran and pakistan uh, who all have a vested interest in, um, you know, making sure that Afghanistan doesn't go back to what it was uh, under the the Taliban in the first the first time around, um, and even countries that have been 
sort of involved in supporting the Taliban, you know, Russia, uh, Iran, Pakistan, uh, they all have vested interests in kind of not repeating the things that happened in the 90s. I mean, the Pakistanis, I think, you know, found that uh, when they helped the Taliban to power the first time, it was it was sort of, you know, with the sense that we're going to have a cl our clients in power in Kabul, but what they got really was a government that didn't respect the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, that kind of fueled a, a Taliban movement in Pakistan, um, you know, for Iran, uh, which is never, I mean, until, you know, the last few years, never had a good relationship with the Taliban and viewed them, I think, um, you know, entirely as both a, a sort of buffer against the Islamic State and as a way to kind of uh, hurt the United States and, you know, and kind of, uh, you know, do deal it a little bit of a wound. They don't want to go back to to the 90s and, and when, you know, you, you've already mentioned the Hazara uh, were, you know, suffered under Taliban rule. Uh, Russia doesn't want to see uh, a, a hardcore kind of Islamist state uh, that that supports Islamist movements in Central Asia and up into the uh, you know kind of uh, southern parts of Russia. Uh, so a lot of these countries have good reason with the U.S. out of the way and with that kind of off the board, uh, with it, with Afghanistan no longer being a place where they can hurt the United States uh, to really step in and and prevent uh, the Taliban from from kind of resuming the level of power that it had in the 90s where what do you expect uh to see from uh sort of the other countries in the region now and how how big a shift uh could we expect from some of them in terms of their approaches to afghanistan uh, that's yes you described it beautifully uh, first of all as you mentioned taliban is not a puppet of any of these countries that you mentioned Right, we have to note, note that this is important. Uh, no country of all uh, the list that you mentioned wants a Taliban to uh, take over the government in Afghanistan by force. Yeah, they obviously have no other choice but uh, uh, accepting that Taliban is going to be part of the, at least is going to be part of the government in Afghanistan. Uh, but it's not in anybody's interest that a unified Taliban government would uh, take the government, uh, Afghanistan gover uh, government by force. I think, uh, as you mentioned, they are all worried about extremism, uh, you know, from Central Asian countries, uh, from Russia, China, India, Iran, and Pakistan. And uh, it's important to uh, to to uh, you know to know that uh, Taliban doesn't necessarily listen to any country uh, from uh, the from the list that you mentioned. So what they can is uh, what they have been doing so far. You know that the Taliban tried. Uh, I mean, so, I'm sorry. Pakistan tried to keep its connection with the Taliban, occasionally hosting them, being in close touch with them. Iran started uh, having a, since 2018, openly having uh, delegations of Taliban. Um, some Arab countries have been engaged. Uh, India came late, uh, but uh, fortunately it's now part of the 
group of the countries uh, trying to get uh, to be engaged with the future of Afghanistan. Russia and China have uh, kept their close uh, touch with the with the Taliban. The hope is that you know uh, Taliban wants to govern the Afghanistan. They want to rule Afghanistan. They don't want to be a, a you know military a uh, some kind of armed uh, terrorist group. You know they want to have a capital city. They want to be to have uh, relations with the with the outside world. And for that, they need to be able to uh, win the heart and mind of Afghans. Uh, I mean, the Afghan government, unfortunately, has not been uh, capable enough to convince them that, uh, you know, the uh, public opinion and the opinion of Afghans uh, is, uh, uh, needs to be respected. So I believe they, they all these uh, regional countries, the more the better. I have always written about that. The more countries are involved with the uh, you know, future of Afghanistan, the better chance that uh, some, better, uh, some good out, outcome may come out, may, may, uh, may be achieved. So uh, uh, Iran has uh, different concerns than, uh, than uh, Pakistan. Pakistan has different uh, you know, headaches than India and uh, all the other countries, but they have a main, a main, they have a common interest and that is the uh, stability of Afghanistan. I think unlike in the 90s where uh, when every country from the United States to the rest of the world and all the uh, armed groups wanted to get uh, to topple the, you know, the communist regime in Kabul at the expense, even if the country would turn into a uh, civil war. Right now, that is exactly the opposite. They are, with all the shortcomings of the Afghan government, no one wants the country to be, to, uh, to get, uh, you know, to roll into a civil war. And that is the only thing that gives me hope, to be honest with you. Uh, they, I mean, I think the lesson that both United States and everybody else got is that the military presence doesn't bring peace, doesn't uh, make you, doesn't give you the uh, uh, what you need actually to to rule a country, and um, and sometimes military can be part of the issue, uh, you know. And uh, I think that it's there is a good chance that. Uh, you know, United States and um, maybe other countries would think that occupation is really not the, has not been a solution anywhere, and especially not in Afghanistan. To sort of uh, build on that, I guess, and, and you know, as you, as you say, the military occupation has not succeeded. And I think even to go a bit further than that, it, it, it has papered over uh, a lot of weaknesses in the Afghan government that, that the United States established, um, you know, it's kind of covered over a lot of the failures of that government and flaws. Um, but we, there was a New York Times article uh, a couple of days ago about the fact that the United States is already apparently, the Biden administration 
is already apparently in negotiations with um, a couple of Central Asian governments about potentially uh, just kind of repositioning some counterterrorism forces out of Afghanistan, but leaving them close enough to kind of get involved if uh, Al Qaeda should, uh, you know, pop its head up or to to attack, you know, the Islamic State in Afghanistan. Uh, talking about, you know, maintaining the ability to do drone strikes in Afghanistan, to do uh, long range airstrikes if necessary. Uh, do you do you have any concern that kind of maintaining this counterterrorism presence, even after the you know withdrawal and, uh, you know, maybe you can put that in quotes, uh, but kind of sticking around to continue attacking, you know, counterterrorism targets? Could that backfire? I mean, is that could that either backslide, you know, take the United States back into sort of, uh, you know, striking the Taliban or, you know, in the hearts and in the sense of, uh, you know, winning hearts and minds. Is there a potential here for that to 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 kind of blow back on Afghanistan and the U.S.? I do. I do. Uh, for the reason is that uh, first of all, the Sunni extremist groups from the Central Asia uh, that, you know, it, they are famous. I, I'm sure you know about, you know, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan and other uh, republics in Central Asia with the, you know, with the groups they call themselves uh, Islamic State, uh, Uzbekistan, Islamic State, uh, Tajikistan and whatever. So my concern, my personal concern is that there would be another competition uh, with, uh, between the United States, Iran, Russia, you know, over, and China, obviously, over uh, influencing or trying to prevent each other's influence in Central Asia. And that is a bad news. That is how it starts normally. And, uh, um, you know, you cannot uh, talk about being tired of war uh, 20 years in one country, trying to convince uh, the people that you need to pull back the, your forces and you have no business being in a country for 20 years, and, but at the same time uh, concentrating in Central Asia. You know, with Central Asia, Iran, Iran is now, uh, as you may know, is also uh, has has also plans to expand its uh, influence in South in, in Central Asia. With now with Tajikistan over a, a military pact and uh, other places, there has been um, competition between uh, the uh, between Islamic Republic Iran and uh, you know Saudis over their uh, imposing their power uh, in in Central Asia, and that I think is not going to be a a a, a reasonable and proper outcome uh, of uh, of foreign presence in Central Asia, especially when you mention when you really try to convince. Then you justify it by saying that, oh, it's because it's to combat extremism. Sometimes the presence of foreign uh, forces have contributed to this uh, extremism, uh, to this religious extremism. And um, uh, Central Asia is not an exception. 
uh, to to kind of wrap up, I, I mean, I keep coming back to um, the thing I keep coming back to is, you know, there are a lot of potential. Uh, there's a lot of potential for a bad outcome here for Afghanistan when the U.S. leaves. Um, but it it is we're at the point now, 20 years, you know, almost 20 years into this war or, you know, in the 20th year of the war where if you haven't secured anything by now, um, you, you, you may never secure anything. You, you may never have an Afghan government that can stand on its own and uh, kind of manage its own affairs and deal with corruption and handle warlords and win the hearts and minds of the Afghan people, as you said, uh, or an Afghan military that can stand toe to toe with the Taliban and, and, you know, hold on to, you know, secure the country. Um, so with that said, uh, to bring us back to, to the beginning of the interview, the Biden administration has extended the U.S. withdrawal deadline by, uh, you know, a little bit over four months. It was supposed to be May 1st. Now it's going to be September 11th uh, will be the deadline. Um, is there anything that the U.S. can do or the Afghan government or in collaboration they both can do uh, with that remaining window of time? Uh, to try to shore things up uh, for when the U.S. leaves, or if there's if there's one thing, maybe uh, one area that they could focus on, what what would it be? Uh, that's a very good question, and obviously, I mean, there's so many problems, right? The Afghan right. military is a, is a shambles. Corruption is rampant. The government is, you know, yes. what it is, and, and these are all problems that probably can't be fixed in four months. It's like cramming for a test, right? I mean, you had you had all this time to fix these problems and you didn't do anything. Uh, yes. But is there anything you can do in this last little window to to try and make the best of it? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the import the most important thing is not to cut the ties, not to cut not to cut the connections with the with Afghanistan, with the people inside Afghanistan. I mean, once you pull back the military, the uh, presence of when you pull back your troops, you would still be engaged with the uh, with people in Afghanistan through international institutions. The United Nations may have been more effective than any, uh, you know, uh, military presence of any foreign country. So they need help, they need fund, uh, not excluding any Afghanistan's uh, neighbor is very, very important. I mean, what happened in the previous administration was that Iran wouldn't be even mentioned as a, a Afghanistan's neighbor. It was like Iran was taken out from the from the map. So it is important to uh, be engaged, separate Afghanistan's issue with other issues that the United States may have with, say, with Iran over the JCPOA, over the uh, nuclear uh, dispute. I mean, Afghanistan really deserves a, a participation of all regional players and uh, a United States that's encouraging uh, all these uh, countries. And a, the government uh, needs to be uh, receiving you know, support both in terms of funding and the uh, you know moral support, um, so you can't just 
uh, you should not disengage from the country once you are you pull your uh, troops back. And the problem is that the uh, Biden administration uh, made this, uh, you know, um, pullback on in September 11. On September 11, something, uh, you know, uh, con not condition based. That is, that was, I don't know, that was not very, maybe not very smart thing to do. But it is important that the uh, Taliban understands that uh, once they are out of Afghanistan, doesn't mean Afghan society is at their display and they can do whatever they want. And uh, it is important that, you know, uh, to keep the connection with the Taliban, you know, I mean, whoever thought to be engaged with the Taliban uh, when they uh, when there was no talk of uh, uh, of getting engaged with Taliban was a, uh, was a smart thing to do you know and it is important to be in, uh, in touch with Taliban to be uh, to talk on the to be on the same uh, page you know in regard to Afghanistan uh, society and at the same time, you need to be prepared for the worst. And the worst to me is the, uh, this mass migration. If God forbid, you know, uh, something nasty happens like uh, violent uh, takeover from uh, Taliban, from the Taliban. Uh, so you have to be able not to let these people at the mercy of Taliban, uh, you know, completely. So you have to, you have to be. You have to uh, to keep your connections. That's that's uh, what I truly believe. Do you think? And this is sort of um, very hypothetical. But is there? Could the Taliban cause enough trouble? As some, you know, as you mentioned also a little earlier in the interview, the the they're unhappy. I mean, they're unhappy with this extension. They wanted May 1st. They negotiated that with the Trump administration. Uh, they're boycotting, you know, they're threatening to boycott the peace process. Um, could they make it difficult for Biden to follow through on this by uh, resuming attacks on U.S. soldiers, by, you know, stepping up uh, their campaign generally, uh, while continuing to sort of in not engage, refuse to engage in, in the peace process? Is there any chance they could uh, force Biden to reconsider this? I doubt. I mean, with Biden, he announced the way that it doesn't look like any, you know, revision. right. It doesn't look like any gray area. I, but I agree with, with you. The, yeah. with, with the Taliban, I doubt they would uh, attack U.S. forces or U.S. interests. But as you mentioned, the, the Taliban is not a unified group. There are spoilers from both sides. My concern is that either the Taliban or the government of, of Afghanistan may try to test their strength. You know, meanwhile, before the uh, the uh, U.S. forces or international forces leave Afghanistan, you know, just to see how things would change if they can uh, make. The United States uh, revise is this is it's uh, their decision in in pulling back or if they uh, can really get uh, into more leverage in terms of Taliban uh, taking more areas and and uh, try to 
you know, show its their strength. That's that's the only con. That's the a concern that uh, I believe should be considered. Uh, you know, uh, that is the reason why I meant uh, the connection and link and in engagement with both the Taliban and the uh, Afghan government should be kept, should be really uh, uh, contained, not just thinking of, oh, we are leaving Afghanistan, it really doesn't matter, or we are moving to Central Asia, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, what right. will happen in Afghanistan. Okay, I think on that note, um, we'll uh, we'll leave it there and, and come back. I'm sure there will be plenty of opportunity to revisit this decision and, and its effects down the road. Uh, Fatima, thank you so much uh, for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. All right. And with that, this uh, extra large episode of Foreign Exchanges uh, is at an end. That's it for us this week. Uh, I do want to thank again Mena Ayazi from Search for Common Ground, Kate Kaiser from Win Without War, and Fatima Aman from the Middle East Institute for sharing uh, their thoughts and expertise uh, on what's going to happen and what could happen uh, in a positive direction uh, moving forward. Uh, this is obviously something that we will be coming back to. It's a topic we'll be coming back to again, I'm sure. Uh, but as always, uh, for now, thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.